This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will sort of select at random. Any book from my collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 39th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at Silver Age Classics, cover dated 1992, which is a reprint of Detective Comics 327, cover dated May 1964. But first, a little feedback. The rule for this episode is that I'm only reading feedback from people named Jason. Well, it wasn't a rule, but it did seem to work out that way. Jason Trenner wrote in about both episodes 37 and 38. On the Micronauts issue, he said it was great and that his first exposure to the Micronauts was the cable issues, where the Marvel-owned Micronauts returned to comics and teamed up with Cable Domino Copycat and Kane Garrison to battle Psychoman. Now, I made mild fun of Jason recently for some of his uh, obscure character fandoms, and he admits that's probably part of the reason why I've never given you any grief over liking Moon Knight, Professor. Okay? Fair is fair, Jason. Fair is fair. On to the Shadow issue. Jason mentions her status in the DC New 52, which makes what is going on here quite weird. And he says that's just one of the things that happens when DC upends the continuity. It is very tricky in the New 52 because they say, oh, it's an absolute reboot, but then it's not really. And even where it is, we still bring our memories and our knowledge and our recollections of the past iterations of characters into the New U. So there's always a compare and contrast going on, at least mentally. So it can make for a interesting reading experience, to put it mildly. I also got feedback from a new listener, a new Jason, Jason Van Slyke. Specifically, his feedback was for Emily's Uncovering the Bronze Age episode about the Comics Code and Frederick Wortham. But he does say that it was this show that brought him to the network. And when a new listener comes and I don't recognize their name from Facebook or as a feedbacker to another comics podcast, I ask how they found the show, and I love Jason's story. Professor Allen, I found your podcast searching for, quote, quarter bin, unquote, in the iPhone podcast app. Well, it doesn't get more direct than that. He says he lives in San Antonio and has quarterly comics and toy expos, and one is full of long boxes where comics can be found for a quarter each or less. And that sounds like the quarterly sales that the LCS uh, does, uh, the LCS in the town where my campus is, how they operate. They, They don't have quarter bins out all the time, but have them out for a week, three or four times a year. Jason goes on, So I was wondering what isn't on my radar that I should be looking for. And then he says nice things about this podcast. Covering books of any era and genre, and I was hooked. And that's what I like to hear. He then does mention half-price books, 
reporting that there are about a half dozen in his area. And what I've learned from the half-price locations around here in Ohio is that not everyone has comic books. The ones that do all seem to have dollar boxes. But even among them, not every one of those has quarter books. But many do. So that is a recommendation to every listener out there. There are half-price bookstores in about 15 or 18 states. It's a surprisingly large chain. Jason closes his email with, Keep up the excellent work. It's wonderful to see a project like the Relatively Geeky Network go from pretty good to great and then on to amazing. I think amazing he was referring to Emily's episode, but I'll assume that the great relates to this podcast. (laughs) Thanks for the feedback, Jason. Glad to have you listening. To Jason and to any new listeners who have found the network or the show recently, feel free to send feedback on earlier episodes Just because a show was three months ago or nine months ago or 18 months ago, I'm still up for revisiting those comics and those topics and welcome whatever feedback anyone has on those. Don't don't feel like you've missed out on your chance to comment just because an episode is a little old. And also, to clarify, this invitation for feedback and comments applies to people not named Jason as well. All are invited. All are welcome. Now, let's move on to our issue for this episode. Silver Age Classics, Detective Comics 327, had a cover price of $1, meaning I acquired this comic at a solid 75% markdown. Of course, the original issue had a cover price of $0.12, so if I'd bought that for a quarter, it would have been a 108% markup, and that is something up with which I will not put. The cover actually shows a slightly shrunken version of the original cover, which was drawn by Carmine Infantino and Joe Giella. In this, Robin finds Batman laid out on the floor after an explosion, and the boy Wonder seems worried. At the bottom of the original cover, we get a super-stretched purple-clad arm and the promise that this issue also includes the elongated man. Wrapped around the shrunken version of the original cover is the claim that this book includes landmark events from the Silver Age of Comics as they were originally presented. I guess we'll see about that now, won't we? Now, there are two stories in this issue, and we are going to cover them both. The first of these, featuring, of course, Batman and Robin, is The Mystery of the Menacing Mask. The story was written by John Broom, with art by Carmine Infantino and Joe Giella. The story starts with a splash page that serves as sort of a second cover to the issue, which was not uncommon in the Silver Age. It's a scene that takes place later in the story, so for spoiler purposes, I'm going to skip this page to get to where the story actually starts on on page two. And there we learn the neighborhood of Gotham Village is an anachronism, a relic of the past, lying in the heart of Gotham City. A heated debate over the future of Gotham Village is ongoing, while anti-crime groups want the area of Gotham City destroyed and rebuilt, gentrified, we might say these days. There are those who are asking for conservation of the location because of the historical nature of the area. Also, the neighborhood's destruction would lead to many people becoming homeless and many businesses going, well, out of business. Bruce Wayne, of course, 
is a member of the Committee to Preserve Gotham Village, which is chaired by fellow businessman Roland Meacham. He and Dick Grayson decide to take a walk through Gotham Village, where they're confronted by Linda Green. You! You're Bruce Wayne, and I hate you! She does not want the historic area preserved. This awful place should be destroyed! Bruce and Dick let the distraught woman tell her tale. It seems that she and her fiancé James Packer grew up in the neighborhood and are to be married soon. But she explains that she's worried because he has been away from home at odd hours, and she also found a map. Using his keen detective skills, Bruce points out that, one, it is a map of Gotham Village, and two, part of the area is circled with a big X on it. The circled X sends us into a Thomas DJ-style flashback time. For earlier in the evening, our heroes were doused with an isotope that put the same mark on their foreheads. They actually do some detecting at this point, learning what kind of isotope it was and who in Gotham had last ordered it, and they follow their lead to criminal Frank Fenton, who flaunts stolen goods right in their faces. But Batman and Robin were unable to stop Fenton because the isotope that they were exposed to allows Fenton to paralyze them until he can make his escape. Now, I was a little confused for a second here because the cover mentions that the elongated man is in this issue, and this Frank Fenton fellow looks an awful lot to me like Ralph Dibney. I quickly realized he wasn't, and then I was back engaged in the story. So that's the end of the flashback, and back in the current day, after finishing their recollection, Linda spots her fiancé, and Bruce and Dick offer to speak to him on her behalf. All right, Mr. Wayne, she says, now that I've met you, I trust you. Not so fast with the trust, Linda, because they changed to Batman and Robin to pursue the fiancé, which is not exactly what they said they do. They end up finding a secret tunnel to the underground, literally underground criminal organization, which runs Gotham Village, controlled by Frank Fenton. Fenton tries his super-duper paralyzing trick again and soon finds it doesn't work. And Batman and Robin manage to round up the whole crowd of crooks. When the police arrive to take the crooks down to the station, Batman notices the ringleader seems to be wearing a rubber mask on his face. Removing it, he finds Roland Meacham. That's right, Roland Meacham, the head of the Preservation Committee. The police captain then explains it, in case we hadn't put all the pieces together. The double dealer. He was trying to save Gotham Village, only to prevent his underground setup here from being discovered. As the crooks are being marched away, Batman explains how they managed to counteract the effect of the the isotope and, and Fenton's mind control. Batman reveals that he and Robin used lead shielding in their helmets, to block the electronic commands that Fenton was sending. Later, back in their civilian guises as Bruce and Dick, they see that Linda and James have patched things up and bring them news that the committee had decided to preserve Gotham Village after all. Like I said before, the, the issue originally had two stories in it, and as was the custom of the era, and so this reprint had them both. 
So let me do the discussion of the first story here, then we'll take our break, and then discuss the second story after that. Now this story is historic. Not, as you may have guessed, because the story itself is so darn awesome. Because, you know, it's not. It's it's fine. I've not read a ton of Batman books from this era of the Silver Age, you know, right before the Batman TV show and all, for all the good and the bad that that brought. But based on the dozen or so stories that I've read from this era, this one is probably above average. I do like any time Batman is a detective, especially in a story in Detective Comics. I'm kind of picky about that. I know that a story without a supervillain, a story revolving around business deals and real estate, may not work for everyone. So I'm not saying it's a great comic story, but it's a pretty good mystery and you know, a pretty good detective tale. This is a solid city crime story, albeit a wacky one. We just can't ignore the isotope body control stuff. That was nothing more than a throwaway plot point. And of course, there was the whole rubber mask thing. It is such a shame that our rubber mask technology has degraded so much in the last four or five decades, they just don't make them now like they did back in the comic books of the 60s or TV shows of the 70s. I mean, it seems like now we just get rubber masks for, like, Halloween, and that's just that that imported stuff that's just not the high-quality, face-contorting, total-disguise rubber masks that were evidently quite common in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) But, like I said, it's not the plot or the writing that has made this story worthy of being reprinted in a book called Silver Age Classics. No, what makes the story classic, or at least important, is that it delineates the histories of the Batmans of Earth-1 and Earth-2. In this issue, Batman gains the yellow circle on his chest, which they refer to here as the New Look Batman. This was Julie Schwartz's first issue as editor of the book, which was slowly inching toward irrelevance, maybe to cancellation. And some changes needed to be made. The logo for the comic changed as well, as did the look of the two leads. Batman and Robin are both a little bit taller, a little bit leaner than they'd been before. One of the other changes in Detective was a change in the backup story. Out was Martian Manhunter, and in was Elongated Man. But we're not quite ready for that yet. Back to the yellow oval on the chest. Now, the Batman of Earth 2 never had the Yellow Eyes logo. There are certain different places to divide the Earths for various categorizations, and for some of those characters, it's a point of controversy whether or not two versions of the character actually exist. I'm looking at you, Aquaman. So some may disagree, but an argument can be made that this is the first appearance of the Batman of Earth-1, and that's what makes it a historic issue. Again, not a great story, it's a good story. But more importantly, it's an important story. By the way, a lot of the information about the yellow logo and the state of Batman at the time comes right from this reprint, where they do reprint the one-page text piece that appeared in that original issue, which discussed the change. Also included in the reprint are 1992 text pieces from Don Thompson, Julie Schwartz, and Bob Wayne. Looking back at these events more than 25 years uh, after they took place. All right, time for a quick break. 
and then coverage of the second story for this issue. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. Greetings, citizens. Join me, your old bat chum, John S. Drew, on my journey to discover what it is I love about the classic 1966 Batman television series on the Batcave podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest host as we review the classic television series. There's a new episode every two weeks. Same bat time, same bat channel on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at thebatcavepodcast.com. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin. On April 18th, 1939, a legend was born. On July 16th, 1943, that legend came to the big screen for the first time. Join me, Blaine Dowler, on our journey through the 12 theatrical releases of the Batman franchise, from the serials of the 1940s to the Adam West Burt Ward film, through the Tim Burton relaunch, Mask of the Phantasm, Halle Berry's Catwoman, and the Nolan trilogy, as we look at how each entry represented the source material and how the source material changed as a result of each movie. New episodes are released on the 14th of each month throughout 2014, the 75th anniversary of the character. Find Big Screen Batman at Bureau42.com, in iTunes, or on Stitcher. And we're back. The backup feature, 10 Miles to Nowhere, was written by Gardner Fox with art by Carmine Infantino. This is the first solo Elongated Man backup story in Detective Comics, and the first page of the story is what we would now call Meta, as Flash and Kid Flash are waving goodbye to Ralph from a cover of The Flash, where the character had long appeared. And at the very beginning of the story, Flash, Kid Flash, and Captain Boomerang appear in a flashback, and we get a quick recap of Elongated Man's origin story. So all of this is obviously designed to help readers adjust to having this new character in this particular book. The actual story part of the story begins with Ralph and Sue Dibney crossing the border after a nice vacation in Canada. The officer says that they're taking a close look at everyone crossing the border, as there's been a $2 million diamond robbery. In 2014 dollars, that would be a bit over $15 million. Now, Ralph's public identity is known, but it seems that Elongated Man's exploits have not reached our neighbor to the north. Ralph keeps expecting the officer to ask for his help, but the guard there has actually never heard of him. His frustration increases when they check into the Starbright Motel and the front desk clerk has never heard of him either. The next morning, as they're getting ready to head out, Ralph checks the odometer on his car, as he always does, and realizes it's ten miles over what it was when they parked. 
They drive about a mile away in case they're being watched, and Ralph changes into his elongated man costume and returns to the motel while Sue drives on to do some shopping while her husband does his superhero detective thing. Ralph finds tire tracks and follows them to an isolated farmhouse and does some elongated eavesdropping to learn that the fellows inside are discussing their recent diamond theft. See, a few nights before, in a Canadian restaurant, the thieves overheard the Dibneys discuss their travel plans, as well as the fact that their car was currently being serviced at a local garage. During the night, the thieves spot-welded a box containing the diamonds to the bottom of the Dibney car, which allowed them to transport the jewels across the border. Following them, they waited for the Dibneys to go to sleep, drove the car back to their farmhouse to retrieve the jewels, after returning the car decided to wait in the farmhouse. If Ralph hadn't noticed the ten extra miles that his car had journeyed, the thieves' otherwise foolproof plan may have worked. By a weird and funny coincidence, Ralph's eavesdropping is discovered, but when the men race outdoors, the springy sleuth slips down through the chimney flue, so that as the diamond thieves race back into the room, they get some elongated man consequences delivered to them. They try to fight their way back, but he twists and turns and corkscrews himself out of their way. When he is finished taking them down, elongated man drives the robbers, in their own car by the way, to the closest police station where Ralph again is frustrated that nobody at all seems to know him. Not the police, not even the diamond thieves. On the last page, he finds Sue in the town as people around him seem to recognize him now. See how people are staring at you, Sue tells him, talking and pointing at you. At least you're getting the attention you deserve. He turns around and shows Sue his method for getting noticed. A sign that he is affixed on the back of his own jacket proclaiming, I am Ralph Dibney, the famous elongated man. I mentioned back in episode 33, the Adam Strange tribute comic, that I'm a huge fan of the Dibneys. Their relationship, the humor, it just works for me. I am a total sucker for them. Emily and I just released Shortbox Showcase 25, and I mentioned there that my appreciation for Ralph and Sue is part of what makes Identity Crisis such an affecting emotional story for me. Like I said, I like Detective Comics, the comic book, when it features detective stories. I am a huge fan of detective novels and stories. I've read all of the Sherlock Holmes canon as well as some of the extended universe. In Agatha Christie, Robert B. Parker, Margaret Maron, Sue Grafton, I've read a ton of these novels. It's a type of story, a genre that I really like. And this one, again, is pretty good. Ralph does some real detective work. The observation, seeing the additional 10 miles on the odometer, uh, seeing the tire tracks. He also uses his superpowers. I didn't exactly spell it out in, in recounting the story, but he actually eavesdrops on the thieves by sitting on the roof of the house and stretching his ear down the chimney. It's a pretty fun and funny visual. And then the fight scene is our visual treat. The ongoing joke about nobody ever having heard of Ralph even though he is the only hero whose identity is publicly known in 1964. That's a modern, metatextual joke, and it's legitimately funny. 
I'm not saying that the story is better than the first one. I'm kind of too biased toward the Dibneys to judge that objectively, but I did enjoy it more than the first one. And that's saying I like the first one good enough, too. The Verdict on Silver Age Classics, Detective Comics 327. A fun read. I don't know that the yellow oval on Batman's chest is enough to make this a classic, as the reprint title would have us think, but it was a fun Silver Age read. Definitely worth a quarter, though I would have preferred to pay the original cover price of 12 cents. DC produced 10 of these Silver Age Classics issues, and I'm pretty sure I've seen a few others in the cheap ends, but I grabbed this one specifically to cover here in 2014, as I knew I was doing a handful of Batman stories this year. But if I see any of the other ones, I may pick them up next time, like those Julius Schwartz tributes I I mentioned earlier. Now that I've read one of these, I'm kind of curious about the rest of them. That wraps up my coverage of Silver Age Classics, Detective Comics 327, bringing episode 39 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 40, we'll be looking at one of the best bargains I've ever found in the Quarterbin. It's an issue so exciting, so dynamic, that it requires a guest host to help me cover it. No spoilers, but the guy I'm thinking of is a true freak. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.